Well, here we go again. It's the Vet Podcast with Brendan and Mark for the weekend in 22nd of December. And we're excited. We're very excited for that Christmas special, which will be happening very soon. Some of you may notice that this um, podcast came out a tad early because we're planning on the, the Christmas podcast to come out on Christmas Eve. And I have lots of advice about um, products to get for your vet clinic, but also a few relaxing things to use or do or view uh, or read over the Christmas period. Um, our announcements are the vet site, vetgurus.com and vetgurus at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, it'd be great. Um, we don't get too many emails. We've had a few, but um, we want some more. We want some more emails. And... Those of you who listened and subscribed and heard last week, um, we've set up a Patreon site um, for um, people if you want to throw us a bone and, and send us a dollar or donate a dollar or two um, per month or more if you want um, to help um, support the podcast and help pay for um, the hosting of the podcast. And, Mark, you'll be um, glad to know that we have zero Patreons so far. <laughs> it's a good start. A good start. It's early. Yes, well, you can, you, we can only go up from here, can't we, Mark? We might get one. Gee, it would be good to get one Patreon before Christmas. Wouldn't that be fantastic? And we'd be so grateful for that person if we do get one before Christmas. Um, but we will do the podcast nevertheless, won't we? We'll just keep soldiering on with it because we love doing it. Um, the shout-out this week, country-wise, because I think we should um, keep – talking about a country every week that um, our subscribers come from. So a shout-out this week is to our listeners in Germany. And, and Germany's jumped up to um, – our German listeners have jumped up to number three on the chart of, I think, 17 countries so far where our listeners come from. So hello to you in Germany. Um, maybe one of them might be Michael, who was one of our keynote speakers who came out to our conference. Um, Mark, if you remember Michael. Um, so it's great if he was a, a listener. So send us an email, Michael, um, to say hi and confirm it is you as one of the listeners in Germany. What have you been up to this week, Mark? This week has been a really exciting week for us because we've had our staff Christmas party, Brendan. We um, we try and do each year a slightly – we don't we – don't, tend to go out to um, restaurants or have dinners like that. But um, we try and pick a, a um, you know, a bit of an exciting um, outdoor activity, maybe uh, affect a bit of team bonding, although our team is um, outstanding, outstandingly bonded already. Um, and so this year we went up to the wonderful Gloucester and in the uh, mountains nearby known as the Buckets, um, where the Barrington River flows, um, we did some whitewater rafting. Now, the flow was a bit uh, – the rain hasn't been real good up there, so the flow wasn't, uh, you know, dangerous. Um, but it was pretty exciting to get out into the uh, – out into the floating on the water, and uh, we did a bit, bit of um, uh, jumping off high rocks and uh, trying to tip each other's boats over the usual sort of stuff that you get up to on the water. So we had a great uh, Christmas party. Excellent. So you still have the same number of staff after that um, whitewater rafting? Did we did do a head count at multiple yeah. times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, well, we're a little bit more boring. We had our Christmas party about uh, three or four weeks ago and we go down to the local pub um, and we have a Christmas dinner. We just found um, it's been um, quite good, the food there, and probably the most exciting thing that happens there, apart from me drinking too many bottles of wine, is um, 
me drinking too many bottles of wine <laughs> and that's our Christmas party there but we have a quite a good time and um, we have a bit of a relaxing um, lunch and afternoon yeah so that's what we do for our Christmas party yeah um, yeah I'm looking forward to your picks I don't think you've told me all of them for our Christmas special as far as equipment and things to do over Christmas so I'm looking forward to that with the next podcast but let's jump into the news we have I think we got four news items this week and Mark you wanted to start off with the first one which was about an extinct marsupial that's been rediscovered do you want to talk about I do that indeed one? and um, I'm pleased to be making a bit of a theme of um, animals close to the brink and the news associated with them and um, and uh, my, my topic this week is a publication um, in the Australian National Geographic, which um, talks about the Mulgara, um, one of the Dazirids that occurs in the central deserts, um, which has not been seen in New South Wales for over 200 years. And uh, just very recently um, was spotted in the far west of New South Wales, making for much excitement amongst those ecologists and conservationists who, uh, who um, you know, look out for these things. Well, because I think they, they thought it was uh, extinct, didn't they? It's not, it's well, it was certainly extinct in New South Wales. Um, the... Uh, the the there has been a low number of them um, spotted through uh, Western Australia and South Australia, um, but even those ones, uh, um, you know, the the uh, the number of them was uh, approaching extinction. But in New South Wales, gone completely for over two hundred years. So it's interesting to contemplate why um, such an animal. Um, would make a comeback in the deserts um, in Western New South Wales. Um, it's uh, it yeah it, uh, the the current theory the best that anyone can come up with is that um, the uh, Khaleesi virus uh, plays a uh, critical role in de causing decline of local rabbit populations, which in turn is likely to uh, make life hard for the main competitors for the Mulgara, the cats and uh, foxes. Um, so um, so while we spend a lot of time thinking about the Khaleesi virus at work, it's probably, um, well, it would appear on the surface at least that it's playing an important role in conservation in the deserts. I don't think I have seen one of these. I may have seen one in one of the um, um, wildlife parks um, or zoos at, at one stage. Have, have, you, have you actually set eyes on, on the Mulgara? No, have not set eyes on it. It's a, um, a pretty hard animal to see. In fact, I think these um, findings were largely the result of um, uh, camera traps and um, and pit traps. Uh, so even people who are um, seasoned con uh, ecologists in these areas find them very hard animals to find. So even with that long lens, an expensive lens you have, you um, still haven't seen one. Yeah, you better get back to the <laughs> bird watching with um, with that camera of yours. <laughs> um, the second news story is very similar, I suppose, in one one respect, and that is um, a report about um, in the Mother Nature Network um, is where I found it um, at the website. Um, snow leopards have been spotted in eastern Tibet for the first time. Um, and the elusive snow leopards have been seen prowling around eastern Tibet, and it was spotted by infrared cameras set up along the Nujiang River Valley. 
by the conservation centre who'd set them up and the area is one of Asia's few remaining wild rivers where there's minimal human development like dams according to the Daily Sabah which I think is a local um, press um, in the region um, and the quote was we have captured images of baby leopards with their mother which indicates a certain quantity of the rare species living in lives, lives in the region Zhao Zhang head of the Shanshu Conservation Centre said to Jingzhou News Agency, the possibility of more snow leopards being present in the area may indicate that conservation efforts are working. Classified as vulnerable species by the International Unit for Conservation of Nature, there are an estimated 2,500 to 10,000 snow leopards left in the wild, with, interestingly enough, 60% of the population residing in China and their elusive nature and general remoteness of the habitat makes a precise consensus difficult. They're pretty amazing animals, the old snow leopards. I, I, I see the photos that people manage to capture of them um, and often they're those, I think, one of the Attenborough specials had some amazing footage of them, didn't they? Um, that Planet Earth one, I think it was. Um, um, they're an amazing, amazing animal, I think. Um, so another species that I haven't um, seen up close, um, but maybe one day um, I see a snow leopard as well. Have you seen a snow leopard, Mark? I think there's – wasn't there snow leopards in one of the zoos in Australia? I think that um, that's as close as I've gotten anyway. Um, I'm pretty sure that um, one of the zoos has uh, – uh, a pair of them. Uh, might, it might even be just a single animal, um, but um, but yeah, I, I that would... was up on Brisbane on the Gold Coast. Or Maybe up there, wasn't I'm it? just uh, yeah. struggling. You can to... do a little search for that when we go through the next um, next little article. Yeah. The um, but the the photographs, uh, Inga. Inga, Inga, oh, a photographer whose name eludes me at the moment, and I'll, that's another little search I'll do. But um, those photographs you mentioned uh, and the time that people take to uh, get those beautiful shots of snow leopards in the wild, well, hopefully that's what I'll be doing one day. Yes, um, before that one becomes extinct. Along with the one. Let's get off some depressed thin news and, and talk again about another related subject, and that's the third news story for the week. And what is that one, Mark? I think. Well, this this news, one. as you said, it's we're really following a theme here, um, and this one is about uh, the thylacine that um, geneticists have just um, sequenced the species mitochondrial genome, um, which, in addition to the uh, um, nuclear genome, means that the entire genome's been mapped. Um, and so uh, this struck Michael Archer, um, our uh, paleontologist, scientist, ecologist at the University of New South Wales, who sees these gene sequencing efforts as important progress to bringing the marsupial uh, tiger back from extinction. Michael's been very vocal in the media, um, in the science media, in the general media with his uh, um, a proposal to uh, Jurassic Park, the uh, yes. um, the the lost species, um, and he sees this um, uh, this advance in genome editing and reproductive biology, and he's talked about artificial wombs as pathways to um, leading to a process called de-extinction. Um, so, but I, I tend to agree with um, uh, an evolutionary geneticist at the University of California, Beth Shapiro, um, and uh, her team has um, done a whole lot of uh, 
genome sequencing, including the passenger pigeon. Um, and I sort of take her line quite strongly that um, these genome projects are not the solution to the problem of disappearing species. Um, and I'll quote her here, the thylacine is extinct because we made it so. We cannot bring it back, Shapiro says. When I see videos or images of the last thylacine, these are harsh reminders of the pressing need to develop technologies to stop other species from becoming extinct. And uh, and I think um, that what uh, Beth is saying there is exactly the truth, that um, if we feel we have the insurance of science to bring these species back, we won't value them while we've got them um, and we will just lose more and more of them. So, uh, so I think while it's exciting news that we've got that uh, complete thylacine genome, I think it just reminds us that we need to take better care of those species that are still with us. Yes, and the other interesting thing I found about that article um, or about that sequencing was it was um, sequenced from the DNA of a, of a thylacine pup that was preserved in alcohol when it died in 1909, so a 100-year-old um, pup that they managed to suck out that um, DNA to do the sequencing. Yes, I mean, will we have those animals brought back to life or not? Who knows? Um, and should we be doing that is always the thought in my mind. And, yeah, you see those tragic pictures, you know, that, that and I'm sure you've seen it plenty of time, that, that video of the, of the last Tasmanian tiger um, pacing up and down in its enclosure. Um, um, for that a pretty amazing looking animal there and sad that we don't have them with us anymore um, um getting back to the um, little story we had about that's the snow leopards yes there are several zoos in australia that do have them um i think the pro one the place we probably saw them at was taronga zoo the main um, zoo in sydney um and they've been involved in the breeding program for snow leopards in us in the australasian region for a while and the first pair of snow leopards arrived at Taronga Zoo in February 1990 from two different zoos in the USA. And in 2005, two cubs were born, a male and a female. Um, so it's good that we've got some breeding programs that are they're actually working for the snow leopards, considering that potentially there's only two or 3,000 um, or maybe less um, left there in the wild, which is a few more than we have left of the Tasmanian tiger, isn't it, Mark? Um, yes. Um, actually, all that news is pretty depressing, isn't it? Um, it's not well, too well much, to make um, you feel better, you should go to um, Inga Van Dyke's um, uh, webpage, an Australian photographer who's taken some of the best snow leopard photos I've seen. So... Well, send me that link and I will make sure we um, have that in the show notes for people at vetgurus.com so everybody can um, click on that and have a look at those pictures, including myself. That would be great. Thank you, Mark. Um, well, actually, the last news story is probably a little bit more upbeat, isn't it? And that is something I pulled out of, um, yeah, the Mother Mother Nature Network as well. And that is something a little bit closer to home, eight things you didn't know about guinea pigs. Um, it's probably eight things you already know about guinea pigs, but I thought it was quite an interesting article. And I think the article was written or posted a couple of years ago. So I'm going to go through the eight um, little things, Mark, and um, you can comment on them and we can have a little chat about them. Number one, 
guinea pigs aren't pigs and they aren't from Guinea, <laughs> which I think we probably already know. The rodents come from the Andes of South America and the Guinea in their name may be a corruption of Guyana, which is part of their natural range. Pet guinea pigs are descendants of wild ones that still roam the mountains and grasslands of South America. And it reminds me of a, a very dad joke that I've often told to my, my kids, and that's where, where are the Andes on the end of your armies? And I still like that joke um, after all these years, even though my wife and my kids still cringe um, about that. So, yes, that's number one. Um, probably doesn't need any further comment than that. Number two, they show happiness in the cutest ways. So how does a, a, how do, how, what do you see with a happy guinea pig in your clinic, Mark? Um, they, what do they do? I, I usually am looking for them to make one of those little purry sorts of noises that, um, that just don't seem to fit them. Are there other things that they do? Well, they're talking about, you know, that jump in and jump in up and down and hop in repeatedly and, um, you know, um, we call that in rabbits, we call it binking or binkies. Um, can you remember what it's called in, in guinea pigs? I, I would have called it the same thing. Uh, popcorn in <laughs> is what guinea pig owners call it, popcorn in. So they're bouncing up and down like popcorn um, corn popping, which I think is a, an apt term for it. I don't see too many guinea pigs popcorn in in my clinic because they, they tend to be screaming. And, um, yeah, guinea pigs are amazingly vocal, aren't they? And I, I warn all my new guinea pig clients that, look, guinea pigs or, or if especially say if I was going to do minor procedure on them, like try and look in their mouth or even do a, a simple hair pluck or a skin scrape. And I warn the clients that your guinea pig's probably going to scream and yell and carry on. Um, and often they'll do that with me just looking at them, I think. I mean, that's pretty typical for a guinea pig, isn't it? They're amazingly talkative animals. Very, so, very vocal. Yeah. So um, I like little guinea pigs. They're good. So that was number two. Number three in this article from the Mother Nature Network is there's a reason guinea pig is synonymous with test subjects, yeah, because using the term guinea pig for test subjects came about because the animals have been experimented on since the 17th century. Today, mice and rats are more commonly used in research, so, yeah, hence the term guinea pig. Um, number four, they're herd animals, and I think that's a really important one for us as vets and, and vet technicians, vet nurses, because um, we strongly recommend to our client to have guinea pigs to at least have two guinea pigs or more. Do you do, you do that in your practice to um, recommend to your clients? Definitely, definitely, and interestingly enough, talking about their, their role in experiments and um, forcing them to spend time, you know, making sure the clients make sure they spend time. One of my jobs at university, one of my part-time jobs was to work for one of the professors who used them to uh, work with ultrasound. There was a question of whether ultrasound would burn a fetus because of the, um, you know, the energy dissipated at the dis the, the uh, interfaces um, and the guinea pigs were his experimental animals and he kept them in little um, miniature farms. So there was the back paddock and the the rear paddock and the, um, and uh, it was my job each Sunday after having done the study all day Saturday to go and clean the guinea pigs. So I am aware that they need to be herded and I am um, aware of their role in experiments, Brendan. Well, Good for you. <laughs> Good for our clients that keep more than one guinea pig together because, yeah, they are very social animals. And um, the paragraph in this article mentions exactly that and quoting from that paragraph. In fact, this is such an important element of their quality of life that Switzerland 
has a law making it illegal to own only one guinea pig. I did not know that, so I presume that still still um, applies in um, Switzerland. So well done um, to all. Uh, we haven't, we don't have any Swiss listeners out there. So um, be good once we get a Swiss listener or subscriber that they can um, confirm whether or not that is the case. Um, number five. You can't just feed them any old vegetable. So it was talking about diet with guinea pig, um, and I thought this was quite good, the, the little article here. Um, the first paragraph is, the main fixture of any healthy guinea pig's diet should be fresh hay and hay pellets. Avoid any pellet mixes that include seeds, peanuts, or anything else that, that's not explicitly made from hay. So I think that was very good. And there's another paragraph there. Um with comments such as pet owners must be sure, sure to regularly provide the critters with fresh fruit and vegetables and mentions a bit about um, that guinea pigs cannot produce or manufacture their own vitamin C um, and that fresh food is very vital to them, which is which is good. So I think it was quite a good little summary of what we tend to recommend to our clients as far as what to, um, to feed to guinea pigs. Um, number six of the eight things we did or didn't know about guinea pigs, guinea pigs teeth never stop growing well there we go guinea pigs have open rooted teeth which means they grow continuously this is why it's important for pet guinea pigs to be provided with chew toys to help keep their teeth at a proper length so the question to you mark is what do you recommend to your clients to feed or to offer to their guinea pigs to chew on well the, it's a very good question, Brendan, and it, it has some uh, um, pertinence to where I live. We live on a, uh, a street known as Apple Tree Road, um, and Apple Tree Road gains its name from the obvious reason that uh, there are about a dozen old apple trees all situated up and down the street. And so branches from the apple tree are probably our first recommendation for our local guinea pigs. And if we've got them in hospital, um, we do pick them up on the way to work to give them something to chew on. Uh, excellent. So we, we uh, um, one, of, one of the distributors of Oxbow um, products in Australia, Oxbow Australia, um, Jen, who owns um, Oxbow Australia, also produces a range of, of supplements from her own farm that she lives on in Queensland. Um, and we've started providing those in our clinic. And, and one of those is exactly that. It's apple tree um, branches and I think mulberry tree branches as well that she packages up to to provide to um, clients of guinea pigs and rabbits to, to feed to their pets. So, yeah, so we, we, we encourage them to chew on lots of, um, lots of um, twigs and and, and, and small trees um, um, and even I even I, I even recommend to them don't worry about feeding eucalyptus trees to them and eucalyptus branches have you done that I, I have had not had any problem when we've had um, guinea pigs chew on the eucalyptus branches we often provide to our parrots in hospital so I, I, I have begun suggesting that uh, people not just be limited to apples and mulberries and um, that that any um, eucalypt seems to be just fine as well and that reminds me of um, if you look in some of the textbooks or online uh, uh, regarding potentially toxic um, products or plants um, or to feed to rabbits um, in some of those, they they, they suggest eucalypt is um, is toxic to rabbits, and 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 yet 
um, I would have thought that if it was toxic to rabbits, we wouldn't have too much of a problem with wild rabbits in Australia here, considering the amount of eucalyptus um, trees we have here, and rabbits are certainly chewing on eucalyptus um, in the um, arid regions because that's potentially the only thing they have there. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see a problem with offering eucalyptus um, branches and trees and, and, and potentially even leaves to, to rabbits as well. One of, um, one, num- one of our, I was just going to say one of our clients, Phil, um, has a large-ish property and uh, he's um, planted it out with native grasses and eucalypts and um, and it is the, the uh, bane of his existence that the wild rabbits neatly chew all of them off at the ground and uh, and um, and show display no ill effects from um, uh, turning all his eucalypts into nice neat mulch good on you good on you Phil for proving me wrong <laughs> thanks for that um, well done Phil um, um, we did have I don't mind chili in um, in, in my food and um, occasionally I, I buy a little potted chili plant and plant it out um, in the in the in the backyard in a little planter box and um, I've given up um, because um, we occasionally have um, some wild rabbits around here and they love the chilies they just root strip the tree um, they strip that little plant so I I end up having to get my chilies um, just fresh and use them up straight away and I can't grow my own chilies because of that because of the wild rabbits although considering um, I now have the two um, greyhound dogs um, we don't see too many rabbits in the backyard um, at the moment Um, they sort of keep them at bay and I think if I was a rabbit with our two greyhounds I I would be um, pretty scarce um, and I'd hide um, away from them so number seven um with the eight things you do or don't know about guinea pigs these little cuties are coprophagic um that's right they eat their own poop this may sound absolutely disgusting but rest assured it's a perfectly normal part of the their digestive turn the page process as herbivores guinea pigs subsist entirely on plant material which can be difficult to fully digest and absorb all the necessary nutrients from their first go because of this, they will often opt for a round two on their their already digested food to make sure they've eaten out all the possible nutrients. And and I sometimes forget, I must admit, to to mention to clients that um, guinea pigs are coprophagic. We 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 really concentrate on on the whole um, cecotroph thing with with rabbits and the and the issue with our um, um, perineal dermatitis and our intermittent soft stool clumping around the backside of guinea uh, of, of rabbits but um i i uh, i forget to often mention to the guinea pig owners that, that they'll potentially be eating some of their own feces so it's something i've got to remember to tell especially for those non-savvy new guinea pig owners um yeah um there we go coprophagy and number eight we're down to the last one they're used they are used for food and traditional medicine in some cultures. Guinea pigs are important to many indigenous South American groups and they're often used as a food source and in medicine. Folk doctors have used the rodents to detect illness by holding them to different parts of a sick person's body. When the animal squeaked, it was thought to be because it was found the source of the disease. I'll tell you what, if I held up, held up a guinea pig um, and it was going to squeak whenever it found disease, I'm absolutely riddled with disease, I think, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and of um, um, squeaking I've had from um, guinea pigs I've been holding. Um, so yeah, they are used as a, as I think they're still eaten by the many millions in 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 South America um, as a traditional food. And um, one I think positive thing for the for the locals there. And I I 
did a little um, bit of research on this at one stage for a talk I gave a few years ago that um, um, it's used as a method to empower the women in um, in uh, in uh, South America where where the women um, raise guinea pigs and, and sell them at the produce markets um, and they're allowed to have their own business there so it was quite good in that the women would be allowed to get a bit of power and take away some of the power from the, the men um, and 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 um, be able to breed these guinea pigs albeit the guinea pigs were eaten at the end so it probably wasn't a good um, good result for the poor little guinea pig and on a related note to that I remember my um my, my sister-in-law um traveled to um south america i forget which country it was um i think it was peru and um on her bucket list was that she wanted wanted to eat guinea pig and um she proudly proudly sent me a photo of a guinea pig that was she was eating um while she was visiting there but um that's something you probably won't experience, Mark, considering your dietary um, dietary um, um, preferences. No, those predilections will rule it out for me. But um, a shout out to um, our good friend Sandy Hume, who had the same sorts of photos um, when I was looking at his holidays in South America. Um, uh, he uh, managed to uh, show one of those women who in her um, little farm had quite a uh, stock of guinea pigs and, um, and yes, uh, they ended up um, feeding the Hume family for several days, I think. Yeah, and I think what the way they well the way they have them traditionally, as far as I as far as I um, can discern, is that they have them. Um, you know, just running around sort of semi-wild in, in, in the region. Then when it's time um, for dinner, they just pick one up and um, humanely um, kill it and then um, put it in the pot um, because obviously in some of those traditional areas they don't have refrigerators, etc. so it's sort of a ready supply of food um, that's ready to go. So there we go. That is eight things you probably already knew about guinea pig and you just wasted 20 minutes listening to um, Mark and I um, talk about it. <laughs> so maybe, Mark, we should get on to our main topic, which is, I think you suggested this topic, it is um, the metabolic bone disease syndrome um, in, and we're going to restrict it today anyway to talk about metabolic bone disease in turtles. So do you want to kick off, Mark, with um, a little something? For sure, for sure. Um, and and it, one of the reasons that I thought this would be a uh, particularly pertinent topic is because we just seem to be seeing a lot of it lately. Um, we definitely, I thought there would be a time as owners progressed where this didn't happen nearly as much, but um, uh, so many novices come to own turtles that um, it seems to be a uh, um, a recurrent theme, and certainly we're going through a run of it at work at the moment. Um, so I, we think of metabolic bone disease as uh, uh, encompassing a number of syndromes um, related to calcium metabolism, um, disturbances of other metabolic functions, and that the end result of those various processes is the weakening of bones and shells in turtles. And so the classic outcome is um, a relatively young, rapidly growing turtle who. Uh, um, you know, who has a rubbery shell, who uh, um, you can pick up and, and uh, move the uh, otherwise normal bony structured hard shell, you can bend it. Um, and it's a, um, a bit of a distressing thing to see, Brendan. Yeah, and I think that the, I know the, the laws vary 
wildly between states and territories in Australia, let alone um, throughout the world. But the depressing thing here in, in Victoria, and I think it's the same with, with you up in New South Wales, is they, they changed the laws here. It's probably 10 or 15 years ago now where um, regarding the sale of, of turtles from, from pet shops and, and, and it previously was that you couldn't sell the really young juvenile ones that were that were only five centimetres um, wide at most um, across the carapace um, and they changed it so they could sell them and so depressingly we see every season and every year and probably every month um, lots of these um, young um, turtles that um, they have really high metabolic demands and they're, they're being fed the wrong things, they're being kept the wrong way and they're not being provided with the right um, conditions to help with that calcium and vitamin D metabolism, which we'll talk about in a sec. So we end up with these squishy turtles that are soft and, and puffy and pudgy and you know we end up with basically a turtle soup, don't we? Um, so I'm sure you see the same, don't you, up in New South it's Wales? It's exactly the same. And the laws, as you say, are... are um, uh, one of the contributing factors that uh, um, people can um, hatch a clutch of eggs um, they're lucky enough to produce and uh, within weeks of those um, those eggs hatching out they can pass them on to people who really um, don't have much of an idea or they go through pet shops and um, and uh, the pet stores even, and this is one of the most depressing things about being involved clinically, is that the people who have these turtles are highly motivated to do the right thing. They've often spent a huge amount of money on a, um, you know, a, a terrarium, an adapted aquarium. Um, they have lights of various sorts. They have um, uh, water chemistry analyzers, and a lot of the. Uh, um, you know the myriad equipment, the the uh, haulouts, the the various things they get to um, set up the terrarium. Um, a lot of them, uh, they first of all don't know how to use, and secondly, a significant amount of it's inappropriate. So um, it's all the more distressing for uh, our veterinary staff and for the owners to find out that um, the turtle has something that's probably a preventable disease. Yes, the same old story, isn't it, with a lot of our exotic pets? So the question is, Mark, what? So what do you see with these um, for the vets who don't see these turtles very often? What's the classic signs? You mentioned a turtle that's a bit squishy or a bit um, soft there. So what, what's the classic sort of presenting signs for the um, metabolic bone disease? So we'll just we'll call it metabolic bone disease. It's a bit of a generic sort of term there. It's it, it may not be technically correct, um, but that's what we're going to call it for the podcast here. And that includes all the types of um, variations on calcium, vitamin D um, deficiencies and also potentially um, renal um, problems as well associated with this condition. So, yeah, so what would you see? Um, what's the classic with these that are presented to you? Well, the interesting thing is that turtles often don't show these um, signs until they're very serious. We'll often get to see um, other reptiles uh, at a relatively comparatively early stage of, um, of metabolic bone disease, of the, this sort of problem. Um, and, um, and yet with turtles, because they're in the water, because they'll um, continue to eat and maybe not suffer the same degree of pain because they're supported by the water, they'll often be quite um, advanced. Their shell will be soft. Um, they often have very, very poor um, uh, uh, osmotic 
control OSMO regulation. And so, as you pointed out before, they very regularly come in with uh, significant edema. Um, they, uh, um, they regularly reach a point, I think, where their immune systems start to fail and they end up with trivial infections, whether they be on the damaged uh, uh, shell or in other locations in their body. Um, so, yep, usually we're seeing them when they're pretty sick and they're showing uh, a variety of signs associated with um, the complications rather than the initial soft shell. So, yeah, so, yep, go ahead. So, so when they come in, um, it's often a huge surprise to people. They'll, um, they might just report that uh, the turtle's, you know, been different, been uh, maybe hiding away from um, other turtles in the enclosure, which is an important thing to discuss in a moment. Um, but they'll often note that um, they've gone off their food and, um, and just their behaviour is different rather well before they notice that the shells are soft and um, the, the animals are displaying edema around the legs. Yeah, um, I think the difficulty is it's, yeah, it's exactly like you say, it's multiple problems going on there with the husbandry and the frustrating thing is it's, it's the clients are, uh, are given the wrong information as far as how to look after the turtle, what to feed it, how to house it, what temperatures, how to clean or check the enclosure, that the water quality, um, and 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 lighting, basking regions. Um, it's another topic as far as the setup of the reptile enclosure, the turtle enclosure. So we'll do that in another podcast. But um, yeah, it's difficult. So it's I think one of the key factors, which is basically. I think summarising what you were saying there is if you see metabolic bone disease, suspect a metabolic bone disease in a turtle, um, don't assume that's the only condition going on with that animal. So related to that, probably my my um, comments to a client would be if I saw one of these um, um, at the initial consultation would be, we want to know how sick this turtle is, um, whether it just has a metabolic bone disease or whether it has other conditions going on there. For instance, um, a fair percentage of them that we see are, are potentially toxemic or septicemic as well as a as, um, secondary um, condition with them. So the bare minimum I, I try and encourage clients to, to do for a workup would be um, bloods on these um, to get a bit of a feel for whether or not we need to stop very early on. And unfortunately, I find that, especially with those tiny little turtles um, that, that are brought in, that they may have only been brought in because they're anorexic, um, they're, they're lethargic, they haven't eaten for a, a week, uh, two weeks, a month, um, and they're often at that point of no return. Um, and doing those bloods is good in a couple of ways. One is you, you, you can then look at those bloods and, and say, Show that to the client, and then say, "Here, here, here! Look how bad this this um, um, pathology report is on your turtle, and this is why we need to call it a day now because we have a hopeless case." So it gives you something else to show them to convince them. For those that do need convincing, that that we need to stop now with this. Um, and vice versa, for, for some of them, the blood picture may not be um, um, too bad at all. So they they might be the ones that we might consider going along with the, potentially trying to treat that particular animal. But I always, always, always then look at the client and their family as a whole and then decide, is this a family or an owner that is 
dedicated enough that they will be able to spend the weeks, the days, the months, um, and the years potentially to get this animal back to a um, to a healthy state because they're certainly not going to get better within a few days or a week or so. So um, I think you need to make a bit of a judgment on whether the owner can be bothered um, um, treating that animal, forgetting about costs, um, but um, do they have the dedication to potentially medicate it or, or dry dock it and treat it um, for for weeks on end? So that's probably my my other my other comment for those who don't see many of these turtles. You really need to make sure that even if it's an animal, you're potentially going to consider that that might be savable. Um, that we need to consider or whether or not the client. Um, can can actually go through with the with the treatment regime that we need to do for that animal, and that's and that. So what's I was going to just echo that um, that's one of the areas where I do feel like um uh, there are times that uh, that we get that wrong because we certainly talk you just must anytime you find any of these animals with MDB. Um, you must talk about um, euthanasia because they're they're. Um, there are often cases that are not going to be well for the rest of their life and um, the complications are often beyond people to care for at all. But um, but it is definitely the case that we've had animals that uh, that are probably sub- that are probably going to be able to recover, um, but they've the and the people that dealing with them have been great in the first instance, um, but. Uh, but it does. It is a, a, a long term, um, at least weeks and weeks, and often months and months, and sometimes years before an, an, a, a complete recovery has occurred. And uh, and we definitely have had those sort of discussions a month or six weeks after beginning um, with people who have reached the limit of their ability to to continue to care. So I, I think I just would echo um, those decisions made early often save a lot of tears later on. Yep. So, Mark, getting back to, getting to specifics, if um, you have a vet who calls up to you and says, okay, here's, here, I'm going to take blood from this turtle. I've taken the blood. Let's not go through the bit about where we take blood at um, where we access the veins, etc., from the from these animals, um, I've got the blood results. What things? To give us some pointers, Mark, about what things we look for. What What's a good sign? What's a bad sign? What particular blood values are you looking at as far as telling you whether or not to continue with this? Good animal? on you, Brendan. The main one, the main thing that I'm looking for are the things that uh, give us clues about. Um, the kidneys continuing to function. Um, that uh, we we certainly pay a lot of attention to the blood calcium levels, but the calcium to phosphorus ratio is uh, um, a really important thing that gives us uh, a, a guide as to whether um, the metabolism of calcium in the body is going to be able to be repaired. So reptiles that have elevated phosphorus levels, um, yeah, we're, we're um, starting to really worry about those guys. Um, I haven't got the – in the typical way of being not prepared, there are um, – other things that we'd look for, such as um, the white cell count. You were talking about the um, the uh, likelihood of septicemia in these guys, um, and being in the water and exposed to um, Eremonis and a number of other bacteria, um, they very regularly end up with um, significantly elevated white cell counts um, at a relatively early stage, and that would be something we'd be concerned about. Are there other there are other yes. numbers you look for. 
Yes. Um, well, yes, exactly what you said there. I mean, um, f- f- we we always consider phosphorus as elevated phosphorus as potentially a, an indicator of uh, renal dysfunction in reptiles because we don't look. You know, it's difficult to interpret um, um, the other value biochemistry values that we would in other species like urea and creatinine, etc., and even uric acid um, can be problematic. So we, we're often looking at that actual phosphorus level but also that calcium phosphorus ratio as well and we we might see an inverse calcium phosphorus ratio and for most reptiles we want to see a calcium phosphorus ratio of at least 1.5 to 1 I think is what, what I generally think of so if we see an inverse calcium phosphorus ratio I start to worry have we got renal issues there um, yeah the, the cell count and, and some of them we can end up with I see that have a real um, um, leukopenia um, as a really poor prognostic indicator with them um, and increasingly um, late that um, an indicator that I don't like to see in 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 these uh, unwell turtles is a really low blood glucose level. So, and um, I see some with a blood glucose level, you know, around one or so um, in the metric unit. So, um, it's um, I think a really poor poor prognostic indicator for them. So it can be a bit problematic, you know, trying to work out especially with the biochemistry functions that we traditionally look with our dogs and cats um, at things like our, um, you know, azotemia, et cetera, for renal function where um, reptile, reptile, um, I think reptile um, clinical pathology is a bit of an art as, as trying to indica- um, detect whether or not we have dysfunction of organs. But, yeah, they're the main ones I'd look at. And then I look at those and I look at the animal as well, obviously. And if we've got one of those classic um, turtles that's just a really floppy turtle and, and it doesn't react to me um, and, and, and tightly retract its head and its legs into its um, into its body um, when I'm trying to examine it, I know we've got a very unwell animal. Um, and I factor that in as well as the blood results and also um, what I think the commitment of that particular owner may be um, in potentially deciding whether or not we need to stop with that with that animal um um, I think recently we had a, a good success with a couple of them um, because one of the other vets in our practice or one of my nurses posted on now our, our clinic Facebook site a couple of weeks ago a, a follow-up of um, um, these really young turtles that um, were brought into us um, um, with um, only, I think, mild changes initially and, and they came back for the revisit, um, which has been about six months or so since um, they were last seen and they're doing remarkably well. So we do get there with a fair number of them, but um, probably a much larger number of them we end up euthanizing. And I think the frustrating thing there is that if we had a caught them from day one when that turtle was um, taken home from the pet shop, if we had gone through the sort of setup um, and, and husbandry things um, with the client, we may have caught them before they um, developed the signs. Um, because I know we haven't covered it, but um, um, the, the important factors there are making sure the diet's broad enough and we're relating that diet back to that individual species. What does that species of turtle, regardless of what turtle we're talking about um, what would that species of turtle eat in the wild and try and relate um, the the dietary preferences back to what it should be um, feeding um, and that's usually whole animal diets um, a varied diet for our commonly um, kept 
long net turtles, for instance, in Australia, um, I'd be recommending um, clients feed um, a variety of live things like feed a fish, um, um, a, a variety of insects and invertebrates like earthworms and, and yabbies, um, um, fresh fresh prawns, those sorts of things, um, and also um, even some frozen thawed whole fish um, like bait fish, fish and bait fish, and even marinara mix um, is often what I feed because I don't know about you, but I've, I, I find that clients who are feeding these um turtles on the supposed um, complete turtle foods these commercial turtle sticks or, or, or pellets um, um, end up with um, dietary uh, deficiencies and I think it's because uh, these turtle foods are, are probably not the best quality and or they're also um, not the correct diets for our Australian turtles anyway yeah do you I really the it's same exactly note? the same I think that a lot of those uh, aquarium um, obtainable turtle pellets are specifically designed for those um you know the sliders and the farm turtles from america and they are not appropriate for our species here in australia and they it's a regular thing that we find the the uh the people who are very zealous trying to do the right thing buying their their turtle pellets on a regular basis and as you said for most of our um long neck species they're they're carnivorous and um they're going to need that uh um, large variety of uh, prey of various sizes and species to to provide a, a balanced, primarily a balanced calcium to phosphorus ratio, but also the other nutrients. The other thing that I find fascinating is that um, our short-necked species um, are um, regular. They're probably one of the ones that we have lots of trouble with because they actually have a very different diet in the wild. They are... Are much more herbivorous, um, and um, most um, of the studies of wild short-necked turtle species um, suggest that uh, that maybe as much as ninety percent of their dietary intake is plant material supplemented with a few insects. But like many uh, animals brought in from the wild, uh, they don't necessarily. Um, uh, know this straight off the bat they'll have a tendency to take um, one aspect of their diet and, and obviously the insects or whatever they eat the underwater insects provide um, uh, a rich source of nutrients and if they can find those extra ones that's good but if that's all they get um, then they tend to grow very, even much more rapidly um, and uh, they uh, have great difficulty managing that calcium to phosphorus ratio. So uh, with the the um, Emijura species, that uh, I, I'm often spending a lot of time with clients, encouraging them to um, search out re uh, good sources of uh, freshwater plants. They seem to like um, Elodia, even though that's an introduced species. Um, they uh, um, a lot of aquarium plants they'll trash very quickly um, and uh, and even things uh, that we might feed our rabbits and guinea pigs kale and uh, um, uh, Asian lettuces um, they often form a significant part of the captive um, diet for our short neck turtles. Good point, and I think it reminds me of of, of um, environmental enrichment for turtles. So, um, letting them do things like rip apart and make a mess of of plants that you introduce into that aquarium is something good for them because it gives them something to do, and they're not just living in that 
hospital-type sterile um, aquarium setup. Um, the downside of that is that the, the pressure that will then put on the on the system there and the filter, um, which leads me to another comment for, the, for for what I tend to recommend to all my new turtle clients is that they have a feeding um, enclosure um, or a feeding box. Um, so two things happen there is that um, and you you feed the turtles outside of the aquarium. Um, so you you can use that as a method to do a partial water change. So you're taking a little bit of water from the aquarium, putting it in a in, in a little enclosure. It might even be something as simple as a bucket. Um, hopefully not. Probably something a little bit bigger than that. And um, because um, for those who, who who may not recall, most of these um, turtles will only eat when they're in the water. Um, although some you can train to eat outside the outside the tank or outside of water. Um, so you put the turtle and some water in an enclosure outside the tank um, and then you put the food in that little enclosure. So two things happen there. One is that if that um, turtle doesn't eat all the food that you've put in there, say some feeder fish or, or prawns or, or bait fish and, or plants um, and it's having a good time ripping apart that food, then that... that um, that organic matter is not putting pressure on the tank filtration system because then you just pick up the turtle and put it back in the enclosure. And the second one is, um, which is a thing that um, people don't realise, is the turtles get used to the fact and they get trained to the fact that they're going in the feeding tank. And you pop them in the feeding tank after the first few goes, and sure, some of them it doesn't work, but the vast majority it does they learn that they're going in the feeding tank and they get all excited um, for their little feed. So it trains the turtles. So it's a win-win situation yeah, for everybody. It's a really good point, Brendan. And it, it's the one of the things I mentioned to our clients is the um, the waste that comes from turtles. Uh, it, uh, a lot of people who take on turtles have kept aquariums before um, and so they have a vague idea of the you know the biological load on the filter, but um, uh, the the um, climbing up the phylogenetic tree from fish to reptiles, um, they're the while they're not nearly as metabolically active as mammals, um, they're about ten times in terms of um, body mass. Uh, t- they produce about ten times as much. Uh, um, uh, biological nitrogenous wastes and so they put a huge amount of pressure on the biological filter um, and as you said if you can lessen that by feeding them outside the living quarters that makes a big big difference to the uh, water quality and their um, their general health Yes, and I think that's there. We go another another subject for a future podcast. That'll be podcast one hundred and fifty six, I think, and that will be um, enclosure um, quality, water quality testing, and enclosure setup for for turtles. Uh, probably the only other thing that we were going to mention in this podcast, we just about come to the end of our hour, was um, the the use of UV lights in them and. and um, um, I think both of us certainly recommend UV lights and changing them regularly. Um, the other thing I tend to recommend for all the turtle owners is to have a, a have a, a good escape-proof um, outside enclosure that they can put their turtle in so that it gets access to natural, unfiltered light. Because I think no matter how fancy we go with our artificial lighting, it's still not as good as nature as well. So, But I think we're just about near the end of the hour mark. So... Um, we need to get ready for our Christmas podcast, um, for, so look forward to that. And it should be 
published on Christmas Eve. So look forward to that one. And um, it should be full of Christmas cheer because I think Mark and I will be um, having a bit of a chat about a couple of beverages as well. And I think we might be sampling them during that episode. Um, And we'll have a couple of clinic equipment items that you might consider purchasing for your clinic in the new year. So thank you to all our subscribers and mention it to your vet friends and your vet technician, vet nurse friends. And um, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.